time for Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Um, I really enjoy having you on the show, Michael, because you have an uncanny way of breaking down exceedingly complicated legal issues in common sense ways that help all of us understand these situations. And also, you, as you remind us, the law is constantly being refined, constantly changing in terms of both statute being passed and new interpretations by the courts. We have some interesting cases on the docket this week, including no-fault insurance coming up. But what's first on our agenda? <laughs> Uh, well, I should say about that uh, generally, one of the things which is, uh, I think, great about uh, common law, right, uh, which we enjoy, uh, is that generally legal principles are going to be in accordance with how you would hope a reasonable person who thoughtfully considered something uh, would come to a decision. So that's actually one of the beauties of the the law. I mean, of course, things are complicated, but uh, often when you sort of bear down on them, it's not as bad as it might seem when somebody's using some Latin or some, uh, you know, complicated uh, language or something. Um, one thing I thought I'd just mention before I get to the first uh, topic I had planned was there was a question that was just uh, asked by somebody about property rights yeah. and the Charter yeah. and the Constitution. Um, the In the United States, they actually have protection for property rights in their Constitution. It was part of the Fifth Amendment, which passed in 1791. Uh, and it provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. In Canada, we have none of that. Uh, and that was a debate at the time when the uh, Charter was introduced, whether there should be some protection for property rights. And one of the interesting ways that that's actually going to play out right now um, are the various efforts being made to seize um, assets of uh, Russian oligarchs, or what are believed to be assets of Russian oligarchs, right? You'll see news stories of government scooping up super yachts and yeah. <laughs> various things. And so in the United States, those efforts to scoop stuff up would be subject to the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Huh. Uh, and so there would be an assessment as to whether they could be, in fact, taken, sold, and used for some other purpose, as opposed to just temporarily frozen Right. Like you're not going on your super yacht as opposed to discussions of we want to take sell the super yacht and send the money to the Ukraine. Um, and in Canada, there'd be a much freer hand to do those kinds of things, even without any kind of a hearing, uh, because we don't have any constitutional protection for property. Huh. Um, and so whether you're a Russian oligarch or a large yacht owner with a Russian accent, um, or, or uh, somebody who's uh, trying to do something uh, much more modest with property, uh, we just don't have that protection in Canada. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, many of the, many times it seems these days that the assessment as to whether a law uh, yeah, should be passed doesn't seem to be an assessment of whether it's a good idea, just, fair, or wise. Often now the debate becomes, is something constitutional? Like, can you possibly get away with it? which to my mind is kind of like setting the dose of medication by figuring out what would kill somebody and then backing it off just a little bit. <laughs> nope, um, still you know, dead. Yep, keep going nope, down the line. No, that didn't work. Yep. A little bit. Hey, they survived. That's what we should print on the bottle. Um, you, you would hope there'd be a bit more caution used than that, but uh, so it is. Um, so one, one of the things I wanted to talk about was a, a bill that's gotten some federal bill that's gotten some um, uh, attention, Bill C-21, mm -hmm. uh, which is a bill dealing with uh, further regulation of firearms. 
Um, and it's uh, it's an interesting read, and it's an interesting read in the context of some other efforts that are being made federally to eliminate mandatory minimum sentences. We've talked about that topic before and yeah. how when you design a minimum, you've got something or other in your mind and you think, well, we have to always harshly deal with this. But of course, you know, human realities are endlessly complicated uh, and sometimes you wind up with completely undesirable results. Yeah. Like one of the things I talked about before, for example, is we used to have a mandatory minimum for um, it was possession of a, a, a a um, like a handgun with readily accessible ammunition, yeah, and he used to have a I think it was a two year mandatory minimum sentence. And I have this distinct memory of this World War II veteran with a cane and all of his medals repeatedly shuffling into remand court uh, because for some reason the police found a luger he took off of a German soldier at the end of the Second World War. Oh yeah, I remember that story. The drawer. Yeah, and the Crown seeking this two year jail sentence for this octogenarian uh, who came in note with a cane, and it was only after multiple appearances that I think it became so embarrassing uh, the prosecution ended. But you know, at the moment. We've got an effort to repeal some of these mandatory minimums, but yeah. at the same time, in this uh, the gun the legislation dealing with firearms, there is sort of a similar theme to some of the provisions that are in there, and you know I sometimes I refer to it as sort of the law of unintended consequences. That bill has already generated, of course, some controversy because telling people that you are going to in the future prevent people from purchasing handguns. I uh, had uh, the result you probably should have anticipated, which was uh, every person and their dog who's interested in a handgun flooded into every gun shop and bought up every yep. handgun that was for sale in the country. Yep. Not a lot of foresight there. No. Uh, so that's been documented. But there are a couple of other provisions in the bill that I think are worth pointing out uh, that uh, caused me a little bit of concern just knowing how these things can work. Um, and one of them is that there are these provisions in here that use sort of use mandatory language, kind of like a mandatory minimum. But in this case, uh, they are provisions which would provide for automatic um, prohibitions on people having firearms in various circumstances. And again, when you talk about automatic things, you have one thing in your mind, right? Like, for example, you know, the legislation talks about people that are subject uh, that might have committed an act of domestic violence mm -hmm. can be automatically prohibited from possessing firearms. And, of course, we all might have in our mind what might be intended by that, right? Or some violent, dangerous person. Well, of course, you don't want them having guns. That's going to be a potential tragedy. Yes. But what is that, right? And domestic violence, of course, can run the entire gambit. Uh, and in B.C., for example, in B.C., we have the B.C. Family Law Act, which defines the term family violence. And I oh, should yeah. note domestic violence is not defined in Bill C-21. Family violence in British Columbia includes the unreasonable restriction or prevention of a family member's financial or personal autonomy. Hmm. So somebody who's restricting somebody's financial autonomy unreasonably can't own a gun. Committed wow. Family Family violence, or the other another element in BC, a way you can commit family violence in BC is the intentional damage to property. So, you know, a woman gets angry and you know at a at an argument and smashes a vase or something, right? Mm -hmm. Well, is that what we had in mind when we thought there should be an automatic prohibition on somebody possessing a firearm? Probably not. And so, 
I think the real takeaway there is we have to be careful when we uh, insert uh, provisions that are mandatory and don't have any exercise of judgment or discretion. The bill also provides for these automatic prohibitions occurring in the event that somebody becomes subject to a protection order. Hmm. And that's interesting. Uh, It's going to depend on what exactly is viewed as a protection order, because that can be anything from um, like a peace bond that can be put in place under the criminal code where a person's got reasonable grounds to fear that they're going to be injured by somebody. Mm -hmm. But you can also have uh, things which are referred to as protection orders, Uh, That can be what are called ex parte. That means like an order made without the person being notified of it. Um, And so you can have a circumstance where a person goes and applies for, in a family law context, a protection order against somebody else. I don't want this person having contact with me. And the person against whom the protection order is issued may have had no opportunity to say anything about that or respond to it. Uh, And so if you had that combined with what's currently in Bill C-21, you could wind up with somebody who's subject to that kind of an order where they've had no opportunity to respond to it. What's being alleged may be, may be accurate or inaccurate, and you have an automatic result. And as it's currently drafted, the only exceptions to those automatic things are if a firearms officer is uh, persuaded uh, that the uh, person uh, requires a firearm in order to uh, sort of hunt and feed themselves or it would deprive them of uh, any other meaning, any other realistic opportunity for employment. So very narrow ground. So um, again, uh, there are uh, provisions in here which I think uh, require some careful thought, uh, because otherwise we may be going down the road uh, that we're trying to retreat from on the mandatory minimum sentence front uh, by creating unintended uh, consequences uh, that may produce needless litigation and results that we just didn't have in mind. Uh, when we uh, pass legislation trying to deal with a legitimate concern. Indeed. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070, I think that's a good time for our first break. We'll take a quick break, and right after this, we'll talk about the old growth blockade issue that we reported on earlier this week. British Columbia's no-fault insurance. What do the two have in common, if anything? That and more coming up. All right, back on the air here at CFAX 1070, legally speaking, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next on the agenda, Michael, another interesting potential complication now that we in British Columbia have a no-fault insurance system, and how can that potentially relate to the blockade we saw in the Pat Bay earlier this week? I, I think we can probably put this in the category of one of the dangers of going to law school is that then everything you see, <laughs> you have this sort of legal analysis of, uh-oh, oh no. complicated. Oh, no. <laughs> Endless uh, anxiety. So, yeah. That's right. So I was I'm watching with uh, uh, interest uh, the uh, video of the old growth protesters who were blocking the uh, Pepe Highway access to the ferry terminal the other day. Uh, I guess they somehow thought that was going to persuade people of their cause, but leaving that uh, assessment aside, uh, the way in which they were blocking it was interesting uh, because uh, there was a fellow who was, if you haven't seen any of the pictures or video of it, the protesters appeared to have uh, positioned a trailer uh, across the highway and then attached to the trailer was a tall aluminum ladder at the top of which was a kind of a makeshift chair uh, that a protester had climbed up and was sitting on and attached to that were some ropes and pieces of wood 
not exactly an engineering masterpiece. I, I'm sure when uh, engineers were watching this thing, they had a <laughs> different reaction to my legal reaction to it. Probably, a, oh no, I've gotten <laughs> emails from them. I've gotten emails right. from engineers, and you are absolutely correct. There was a lot of oh nos. So the 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 uh, some of the frustrated motorists that these protesters were blocking, one of them came out there and broke off a piece of wood trying to clear the path to which a piece of rope was attached. And then a few minutes later, this uh, rickety aluminum ladder bent over, uh, causing the protester sitting at the top of it to crash onto the road, injuring the protester. And so my analysis of that, uh, looking at it, uh, tied in with the uh, operation of no-fault insurance in British Columbia. And you might think, how, why? Well, the way that works is that in order for us to have no fault, um, you need to prevent people from suing if hmm. they are injured yeah. in car accidents. Otherwise, you would just say, well, that's interesting. I'm suing you anyways. And so what British Columbia did is that they amended the Insurance Vehicle Act to provide that a person has no right of action and must not commence or maintain proceedings respecting bodily injury caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident. Now, hmm. Vehicle is defined in that act means uh, is defined to include a trailer. Hmm. And so when you put those things together from the perspective of the uh, person sitting on the chair on the top of the trailer, uh, the trailer would be a vehicle uh, and there would be a, a real issue if that uh, the person sitting at the top of the ladder who collapsed onto the road and apparently was injured hmm. were to try to sue somebody uh, for that injury because there would be a real issue about whether that was an accident caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident because the trailer's a vehicle. You've got the ladder attached to the trailer, the chair in the top of the ladder. And so is this an accident, the rickety thing falling over, um, is that caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident? And if so, one of the implications would be the person who fell onto the road would not be able to successfully sue uh, somebody who might have contributed to that injury or huh. accident. Wow. The other side of it is if this is a uh, caused by a uh, vehicle arising out of an accident to it, the chair tipping over the ladder, bending and falling to the highway, you could have the circumstance where that protester may be free to collect no-fault benefits uh, on the basis that they were injured uh, in an accident caused by a right a caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident. And so, if it was caused by, for example, the failure of the ladder attached to the trailer, that may be a vehicle. Uh, and if that's what, uh, and there was an accident, and there's some injury arising from that. We could have the, uh, again, law of unintended consequences, where we, whereby we may be paying for the losses suffered by the latter sitting protester uh, on the uh, basis of how our no-fault scheme is drafted in British Columbia. Huh. Um, so there it is. One of the, uh, I must say, the other impact of uh, going to law school, it also occasionally ruins movies. Uh, when there's some legal scene, somebody's saying, oh, my goodness, that's just not how it works. <laughs> no, but, no. I prob it's probably worse being an engineer, I'm sure, as they sit there hearing sounds go through space and uh, <laughs> things do things they never could do. I'm sure they're sitting there going, this is just not real. This is just not real. But uh, uh, in any case, we, we may find that uh, our no-fault insurance scheme uh, is engaged 
by this guy falling off the top of his ladder in the middle of the Pape Highway. Interesting. Now, I'm trying to think of the exceptions, though, where no fault would not shield someone from liability. And I know that there is a threshold involving, I'm not sure if it's the marked departure of the standard of care of a reasonably prudent person. That's from another matter that you and I discussed. Mm-hmm. Or there are, there are criminal thresholds that can be breached, though, where litigation and liability are possible. Are they not? You're correct. Um, so the, that marked departure of the standard of care of a reasonably prudent driver is the test for dangerous driving okay. in the criminal code. Okay. Um, and one of the exceptions to that general prohibition saying you can't sue uh, is if another person is convicted of a criminal offense related to the accident. Like see. if you're uh, injured by a drunk driver who is convicted criminally, uh, then you may be able to sue. And so that's another analysis of this whole thing. If there were ever charges against uh, somebody that uh, then caused this, that may negate the general prohibition um, on uh, suing, uh, which then leads to a whole other level of, you know, do you have lawful authority to try to remove the uh, persons blocking the highway? Uh, And the answer to that, I must say, is also ambiguous. Uh, A person does have authority to, for example, arrest somebody they find committing a criminal offense, right? A citizen can, right? If you see somebody committing a criminal offense, like obstructing the highway to prevent people from going about their business to try to get them to save trees, you would have the lawful authority to arrest people engaged in that behavior. Sir, you're under arrest. I'm going to hold you and contact the police and uh, turn you over to the police. Uh, now, you'd have to think about whether you want to be in a wrestling match uh, with uh, some logging protesters on some road somewhere. Mm-hmm. But the law is such that you're not powerless. We don't require people to just uh, sit there and watch criminal activity go on uh, if, for example, there aren't police reasonably available, right? Like what yeah. happens if the logging protesters are blocking some highway in the middle of you know rural B.C.? You know, you, you don't need to – people don't need to be at their mercy – uh, for you know an hour while the RCMP officer drives over there to clear the road, um, there is authority under the criminal code for somebody who's not a peace officer to, for example, arrest somebody. Uh, but you'd have to, I, of course, consider the wisdom, not only the legality of doing something. Uh, and so, um, you know, there is, would be a potentially complicated legal analysis as to whether you would be um, permitted to take physical action to try to, for example, arrest somebody or clear the blockade on the highway, um, that would also be a matter of ambiguity, um, much like the uh, analysis as to whether this person uh, bending over on the ladder and crashing down on the road, is that caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident? Uh, Arguable. That's, uh, I guess, one of the uh, beauties, again, of the uh, common law. Uh, You know, if uh, somebody wants to push that point, we'll get a decision on it eventually, and we'll all know whether tipping over an aluminum ladder that you set up in the middle of the highway attached to the back of a trailer is an accident caused by a vehicle arising out of an accident. I wonder what the legal test will be called if they create one. One one can only (laughs) imagine. (laughs) Um, We have two and a half minutes left in today's segment, Michael. Sure. Uh, Last case I think I can deal with briefly is a decision out of the B.C. Court of Appeal dealing with an application to quash a search warrant uh, for video footage from a Hells Angels clubhouse. Uh, And it's a good example of how search warrants work. So that's why I thought it'd be a case worth mentioning. And it was a case where there was a car accident. A Jeep went through a red light uh, and uh, the driver got out and ran away. 
Police uh, looked in the Jeep and they found uh, loaded handguns uh, and liquor uh, and the passenger still sitting there with uh, white powder around his nose. Uh, And so to investigate this, the police applied for a search warrant to search and seize video recordings from a Hells Angels clubhouse that the Jeep had left from recently. And they got a search warrant. Um, And the search warrant was challenged successfully. And it's a good example of what is required to get a search warrant. To get a search warrant, the police need to persuade a justice uh, that they have reasonable grounds to believe that there's going to be evidence of an offense in the place they wish to search. So in this case, they wanted the video uh, recordings. Um, And so when a search warrant like that is challenged, the assessment is whether there would be reasonable grounds which are more than like a hunch or a suspicion that you're going to find evidence of the offense you want to investigate in the place you want to search. Um, And here, both the uh, judge reviewing the search warrant and then recently the Court of Appeal concluded that that just didn't exist here. And the fact that the RCMP uh, wanted to get this video recording amounted to nothing more than a speculation uh, that there might be some video recording of these men outside the clubhouse using cocaine or, you know, <laughs> handling these firearms. And yeah. they found that uh, there just wasn't enough uh, to meet that test of having reasonable grounds to believe uh, that there, that would be that kind of evidence would exist. And so the result is that the uh, search warrant uh, for the video uh, from the clubhouse was quashed. Uh, and the uh, found that that would be too intrusive, and the police won't be permitted to use that. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, your versatility and depth of knowledge, as always, are greatly appreciated. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Bye now.